Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder on the Space Coast is brought to you by attorney Steve Casanova. Check him out at surferlaw.com. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. They all have MOs and they all have certain ways that they make and create evidence to make these people look like they're guilty of crimes they did not commit. And it's easily done and people won't stop and take a look at it. Just conveniently tormenting a young kid. That's what they did to us. They took young kids, they were easy to do, we were easy to throw away and they just took and they throw us away. And now society won't, won't try to correct the problem. I think anybody looking at it today would sit there and say, how preposterous, how is it even possible that this all could have you know, happened in a courtroom? Um, I mean, it was co- completely ridiculous that uh, this dog, uh, months later, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, 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 would have been able to snip out anything. Um, so, I mean, that was the aspect that obviously interested us was the junk science aspect of it. Along with, you know, Gary's very, um, you know, very clear, please, and uh, statements of his innocence, and uh, we, we thought it was um, uh, a real pretty compelling case for innocence. Okay, so Gary Bennett has been in prison since January of 1984 for the murder of Helen Nardi. He has maintained his innocence all this time, and even told me on more than one occasion that even if they offered him freedom in exchange for his admission of guilt, he would rather stay where he is. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast. Once again, a warning. Murder on the Space Coast is, well, about a murder, and things can get pretty graphic. It may not be suitable for sensitive or younger listeners. Just to recap, Helen Nardi was 55 years old in 1983 when she was stabbed 26 times by someone using four different weapons. Nardi, who lived in a Palm Bay trailer park near her daughter's trailer, was no stranger to trouble. Her husband had been murdered five years earlier, and before that, the state took away two of her children because she was pimping them out for sexual favors in exchange for rent. Yeah, you heard that right. It gets uglier. The state allowed her to keep one daughter, 16-year-old Mary, because Kermit Parkins had agreed to marry her, and Kermit Parkins was 53 when he made her his bride. I'm telling you, the ick factor in this case is off the charts. Oh, and Helen and Kermit were also intimate. Yep, she was having sex with her 65-year-old son-in-law regularly. So why did the police focus on Gary? Well, there was a partial palm print on a closet door that led into Helen Nardi's bedroom that matched Gary's. How did the print get there? Gary says now, and he said then, that he has no idea. He was in the trailer, helping Helen bring in some groceries, And maybe he touched the closet, he says. He just has no idea. Remember a few weeks ago when I asked some of my colleagues to try and remember all the places they had left their palm prints and how hard that was? But that palm print pointed suspicion at Gary. He was arrested and then released when he passed a polygraph test and a rape test kit 
that showed his pubic hairs did not match those left at the scene. That's when the state brought in dog handler John Preston. Remember, he's the guy who claimed his dogs could do incredible things, like track a scent, weeks and months later, track over water, and even after hurricanes. He would later be exposed as a fraud and is one of the main reasons why local men like Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, and Juan Ramos were sentenced to prison for crimes they did not commit. Preston said his dog tracked Gary's scent to the murder weapon during a scent lineup about five weeks after the murder took place. Then, prosecutors also worked out deals with two jailhouse informants, Michael Turner and Kenneth Plemons, who said Gary had confessed to them in the jail while he was awaiting trial. So, presented with that case, the dog handler saying his dog smelled Gary's scent on the murder weapon, Gary's palm print, and two jailhouse informants who claimed that Gary had confessed, a jury of 12 found Gary guilty. However, they did not vote to have him executed, and so he was sentenced to life in prison. These days, he is housed at the Northwest Reception Area in Chipley, Florida, a town that is seriously as stark and seemingly hopeless as the rows and rows of razor wire surrounding the prison. For the last 33 years, I have tried to learn every joke I can because I try to keep a positive attitude. And the reason why is because I've had two nervous breakdowns. Here is where Gary showed me and our photographer Craig the two long scars that run down each of his arms from two previous suicide attempts. That was straight up a main vein. That was across the main vein and 90 dilatants. And if my roommate hadn't have jumped out of bed into a pool of blood, I wouldn't be here right now. How long ago was that? That was uh, back in 86. You had just given up hope? And I had given up hope. What, what made you change after that? You know, why haven't you done it again? Or I mean, not that I, I tried. It, I tried it again. You did. Yeah, I tried it again, and that was years later. But um, what finally was put through my head is there's nothing I can do about this, and by killing myself, I'm letting them win. Mm. I am trying my damnedest to keep a positive attitude. I learn all kinds of crazy jokes just so that I can smile at the next day. Can you tell us a joke right now? <laughs> Uh, what clean type one. do you, uh, clean one. Okay, uh. His joke, as I would imagine a lot of jokes in prison to be, was not exactly appropriate. So we'll just move on. As I said earlier, Gary has been in prison since 1984. Yeah, the Orwellian reference is not lost on me either. 1984. Ronald Reagan was still president. Apple had just made the Macintosh a personal computer available in the U.S., and Bruce Springsteen's iconic album, Born in the USA, is released. What has he missed in prison? Well, how about the entire career of Scarlett Johansson, who wasn't born until late that year? The entire grunge music scene? And, of course, the loss of his loved ones over the years. He has lost many close relatives, nearly all but not quite. His niece, Rebecca, who lives in Rockledge, Florida, remains one of his biggest advocates and one of his few remaining links to the outside world. Several of his um, sisters and brothers have passed, of course, while he's been in over the past you know, 30 some years. Um, 
my aunt, his sister, Pat, Patricia, um, my father, um, and most recently in the past couple of years, his mother, my grandmother. And uh, it's devastating. It's devastating telling someone who's been in prison, innocent all these years, um, that another of their family members has passed. Um, he's, he's missed all these years with them. And he can't get that back. Oh, it's, it's devastating. It's, you know, you, you get into it deep and you just want to cry. Um, when I go see him, you know, he, he looks horrible. Um, I know they're in prison for a reason, but they're not, you know, in my opinion, they're not treated right in prison. You know, everybody's, everybody's supposed to be treated right. So I'm thankful for a lot of the investigations going on in some of these prisons, but, um, it's heartbreaking, you know, knowing that I'm leaving and, and what goes through his mind every time we leave and he stays. And while I was working to promote the Murder on the Space Coast podcast, I was contacted by Gary's older sister, Karen, and she wanted a chance to explain or refute some of the things I had found about Gary's childhood, especially testimony during one of the court proceedings that alluded to Gary being arrested in New York and California for male prostitution. She said that was just a ploy to make him look badly. I can uh, tell you, yes, he was in New York, and yes, he was in California, but, uh, but being arrested, no. For male prostitution, that, that just is to buy into their, their claim that he's a homosexual. Look, I've been around a lot of homosexuals. My brother is not a homosexual. She did agree that their father was an abusive alcoholic who made their childhood pretty rough. It was, it was hard for us to be home. The thing about it is that my father was an alcoholic, and he was a very abusive man. Well, we, we, we had a really sad home life with our father. But because of my mother, she was a very positive person, and she was a very strong woman. She was very loving and kind, and she showed that to us. We, had, we saw the best of both worlds. The years haven't really been kind to Gary. He has hardly any teeth left. He is gaunt, pale, and looks at least 10 years older than he is. His eyeglasses look like something they wore back on the love boat and dwarf his face. His latest Department of Corrections mugshot is a stark contrast to the photo of a very good-looking 26-year-old being led away in handcuffs that is pinned on a bulletin board in a room I have been using to put this podcast together. There have been a lot of bad days in prison for Gary. There have been fights, suicide attempts, and being caught with drugs. In that respect, according to attorney Paul Castellaro of Centurion Ministries, the group helping Gary, he has not helped his own cause. I mean, the problem with Gary is Gary has not been exactly helpful. I mean, I, I think he's missing a couple you know, things that he would need and just in, in kind of in his own self-discipline. And he just, so he, he hasn't been hasn't been helpful in the case. I mean, he's has been a model prisoner. He hasn't been, he's as combative today as he probably was the day he went in. The one thing I've learned over the years is, you know, you know, people learn to, as bad as it is, they acclimate themselves.
themselves and, and they're able to get along, and he still can't do it. Of course, if Gary is indeed innocent, then his life is a living hell, one continuous nightmare that he cannot wake from. Obviously, he has a ton of terrible days, but the absolute worst was when his niece Rebecca came to see him to tell him that his mother had died. I want to ask you, Gary, what was it like when Rebecca came here or others came here and told you that your mom had passed away, your dad had passed away? (laughs) I almost died myself. When she told me that, I, I, uh, uh, I'm... That's got to be one of the saddest things. Yes, it was. Somebody... It was. And you couldn't even go? No. Uh, uh, well, they they had a memorial for her, and that was when my sister came down here. But, and I know I couldn't go to that either. But, uh, yeah, that uh, that tore me up very bad. Because you were pretty close to your dad, right? Uh, no. Oh, you weren't that close? I was closer to my dad than any other family member was. Yeah. But uh, when it was when they told me that my mom died that tore me up. My dad, I, oh God, well, you know, I can expect that, he's getting to that age. Uh, but when mom, it, I don't care how old she is, it, it that just knocks Shot. you flat. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I in a, in a way I had been expecting it, but I wasn't geared up for it. Mm. And so they wouldn't let you go to a funeral or? Of course not, of course not. When my little sister, uh, I'm the baby of the family and Patricia was the next sister, but she was my little sister. When she died, uh, they wouldn't even let me go for a deathbed visit. And I was at Bavard, I was at Tomoka at the time, and she was in Bavard, which is 70 miles down the road. And they wouldn't even let me go for a deathbed visit. How does that make you feel when they say uh, no to things like that? I mean, what... uh, you feel lost. There's, You have no hope. I mean, when they do something like that to you, you know, you're stuck. When Rebecca arrived to let him know that his mother was gone, Gary admits that the prison personnel were very compassionate with him that day. He remembers every second of it. Luckily, uh, we were in a little room, which is a shakedown room. It's right over there. And uh, we were in there, and suddenly the uh, I knew something was wrong when the uh, chaplain walked in. I said... Uh, hello, and he said, "You know who I am." I said, "Yes, sir." And then my niece came in, and my, and I knew something was wrong, and I, but I didn't know what. And then they told me, and I bust, I busted out crying, and um, we were in there for about a half an hour to an hour, and then finally we went out. I was okay. The, I, I, I got to admit, the, the captain was very nice that day to me. He, Gary, you okay? Let, let's go sit out here. You, you're sure you're okay, uh, you know, and I, yeah, I'll, I'll do anything, Captain, you know, I'm, I'm not going to cause you no problems. And we set out and had a visit, and I went straight back to my room, and I laid there and cried for a good 24 hours. <laughs> I'm about ready to cry right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> so, after he was sent to prison, Gary filed all the appropriate appeals, including the 3.850 motion, seeking relief for ineffective representation of counsel. What's funny is that most attorneys will not fight being called ineffective because they don't want to hurt their client's chances of winning a new trial. Gary's attorney, Lawrence Letas, fought it, even though there were plenty of moments while reading the trial transcript that I was left scratching my head. He said the reason he did not call one witness to refute the dog handler stuff was because he said he thought he could prove it was malarkey on cross-examination. He didn't really have an explanation for why he did not call a single witness 
who would have testified about Helen's sexual liaisons with her son-in-law and cast suspicion on the son-in-law as the possible murderer. According to an assessment of his performance filed at the time of the appeal, it is believed that if Letus had called a sociologist to the stand, he would have been able to introduce the sexual weirdness that was taking place at the time. Of course, he didn't bother. Remarkably, he also never called a fingerprint expert to raise questions about the partial palm print found at the scene. Really? That was the only real evidence in this case, and he did not challenge it at all. The judge's behavior was also criticized in the case. According to the trial transcript, he rushed Letus several times, including one exchange where he said enough already to a line of questioning that Letus was pursuing. He did that in front of the jury. The harsh reality is that motions trying to prove ineffective counsel are rarely granted, and Gary's was no exception. The years passed, and more appeals were filed, and denied, and then DNA testing opened up new avenues of appeal for many in prison, like William Dillon and Wilton Dedge. Like so many others, Gary filed motions to get the DNA in the case, mainly the traces of semen taken from Helen's mouth and vagina, tested. Finally, he thought, here was something that will prove innocence. A judge agreed, over protest from the state, and ordered the evidence tested. But of course, the outcome was not what anyone was expecting. Leroy Dunning kept saying, uh, well, I know you had sex with her. And I said, look, anytime you want me to do whatever you want to prove that I didn't have sex with that lady, I said, I'd be more than happy to. Because I wanted to prove that it was not my DNA. That's the reason I fought so hard for a DNA test. And then up pops Moxley, and his main thing during the trial was the only motive Mr. Bennett could have had for this crime was sex. But when it comes up to DNA, he, oh, uh, you make damn sure this man doesn't get a DNA test for any reason whatsoever. Now, why wouldn't he want me to prove that it wasn't my DNA? That made no sense whatsoever. And then suddenly the swabs were washed clean of all DNA and the glass slides were completely missing. What did you do when you heard that? When you heard that there's no DNA left in this case to test? I flipped. I could not believe it. Did because, you cry? Did you, did you hit somebody? What did you, you do? Uh, no, I actually cried. I admit that. I cried. Because they, uh, all through here, uh, right there, the acid phosphates well above normal. That right there, uh, the STRY man, uh, the, the head DA guy, said that you could get, you could prove whose DNA it was, yeah. but with minute, so I'm, oh, thank God, they finally allowed me a DNA test, so now I can prove I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And then I find out the evidence has been destroyed. It's not usable. Uh, say what, Are, you're crazy. I, they done screwed me again. What happened actually was, well, I'll just let attorney Paul Castellaro tell you. He was sure the DNA testing would set Gary free. Yeah, I mean, we tried doing, we tried, you know, finding evidence so we could do DNA testing. We actually thought, you know, we went and went down to the courthouse there, actually found the rape kit, and then we thought we really had hit a home run because this would be really, uh, you know, significant evidence. And it turned out you could get no results from it. Remarkably, the rape kit test was there, but there was nothing inside of it that could be tested. It seemed as if Gary was running out of options. 
Some have told me his only hope now is that a politician would get involved on his behalf. I spoke with former president of the Florida Senate, Mike Haridopoulos, who played a key role in gaining compensation for Wilton Dedge and William Dillon, who were exonerated by DNA. He said without reliable scientific proof of innocence, it's hard to ask elected officials, like prosecutors, judges, and others, to intervene on someone's behalf who has been convicted of murder, even if there are other obvious problems with the case. He also said, Justice had to be the most important thing, and sometimes that means admitting a mistake and fixing it. Just to be clear, he did not really want to comment on Gary's case because he just didn't really know enough about it. We are now known as a very much a law and order state, that we will put people in jail and they will serve a minimum now of 85% of their sentence. There's no longer really release. And if we had credibility on the issue, we needed to stand up for justice or innocence as well. And that's why I was so pleased that the Innocence Project and others are looking at DNA evidence. So there's no shadow of a doubt. We all watch it on TV. Now we can see it in action. And so when I heard about the Wilton Dedge case, I got immediately involved. There was a lot of back and forth because a lot of people were saying, oh, this was so long ago. Some people had budget concerns. Some people thought this would open up Pandora's box. There could be a lot of these cases and it can cost the state hundreds of millions of dollars. And my argument kept on going back it was simple. What happened if you were in jail for 22 years in Wilton Dedge's case? Over 20 years in William Dillon's case? What would you do? Imagine waking up to that nightmare every morning. And that, that emotional push coupled with the scientific evidence was what allowed me to move this forward and, and why I was so passionate about it. If I was going to be tough on crime, I also wanted to make sure that we always looked out for justice as well. As part of my reporting, I reached out to the top prosecutor of the 18th Judicial Circuit, Phil Archer, who was elected into office in 2012 and who has absolutely nothing to gain by defending the actions of former prosecutors in the office where he now works. All of this took place two years before he joined the office as an assistant state attorney. I asked him if he would be part of the podcast and be interviewed for it. I told him I wanted to ask him if he would ever consider overturning the cases that involved the dog handler, John Preston. Here's what he had to say in an email. Thank you for the invite, but I must decline. As far as overturning, your word, all the cases involving dog tracking, as always, all cases are subject to review if and when new evidence arises. As it stands, there is more than sufficient evidence to sustain the conviction of Gary Bennett, regardless of the minor role played by Preston and the dog. Minor? Wow. Without that testimony, without fraudulent dog handler John Preston's involvement, they probably don't even arrest Gary, right? I mean, they had to let him go because the print wasn't enough, and then only went forward because of John Preston. And come on, Preston's lies put innocent men in prison here and elsewhere. In Arizona, a law and order state, much like ours, all of his cases were overturned, and the Arizona Supreme Court called him a charlatan. Why is that not enough to give someone a new trial? Remember what Seth Miller of the Innocence Project of Florida said? He practically predicted Archer's response. You know, the question is, does evidence of innocence or evidence of um, a, a grievous miscarriage of justice, does it actually matter? And in some cases, courts have said no. And so, um, you know, what the prosecutors have done in, in the instance of, uh, of John Preston and 
like with many other types of evidence where we find out later that wholesale it was problematic, is they just say, well, you know, that was only one feature of the case and there's still plenty other evidence uh, of guilt. And that's precisely what the prosecutors did in a case of John Preston. They looked at all the cases and they said, well, these people pled and these people, there was other evidence. And so you only have the problems in Dylan and Dedge and, and Juan Ramos. Um, but what we know is that, you know, in Dylan's case, for example, there was tons of evidence um, presented that went to guilt. And when you picked it all apart, each piece of evidence fell apart. But John Preston's evidence, which was sort of magical, it had the aura of science, <laughs> when a jury heard that, it, 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 it had a sort of corroborative effect and it was the glue that kept the case together. When you took it out, the entire case fell apart under, under you know, individualized scrutiny of all the, all the evidence in the case. Karen Bennett has a Facebook page dedicated to bringing attention to her brother's plight. She also wishes she could one day speak with Dean Moxley, the former prosecutor and retired judge who brought John Preston and his dog into this case. Dean Moxley, I, I would just ask him to, you know, search his heart and come clean about the whole thing because there's, there's just no way that Gary's guilty and he knows that. I mean, John, why would he try to mess in this case so many years later when he had no business dabbling in it? I would say to him, you know, you you have made this man and other innocent men and their families go through hell. Hope can be dangerous for someone in Gary's shoes, and he tries not to dream too big. Even his exoneration fantasies are pretty simple. If something were to happen and you were to be you know, found innocent and released, what's the first thing you'd do? I don't know. My daughter, uh, uh, my daughter, Rebecca asked me that same question one time. What do you want to do when you get out? And I said, honey, tell you the honest truth, the only thing that I can think of right now is that I want a pile of bait. I want a cane pole. I want to be able to sit on a dock and I want to fish for eight hours without anybody bothering me whatsoever. <laughs> she said, you sure you don't want a high-tech rod? I said, no, I just want a cane pole. I just want to sit there for eight hours by myself with nobody bothering me. And then she said, well, uh, you sure you wouldn't want to watch the movies? I said, well, uh, so I, we can always go down to uh, someplace and rent about eight hours worth of movies. Then I'll want a bucket of chicken, a bucket of ribs, and a six-pack of beer, and I don't want nobody to bother me for eight hours. They all sound pretty good. Yeah, they all sound pretty good. Next time, on the conclusion of Murder on the Space Coast, Gary strikes up a friendship of sorts with William Dillon. You know, I used to, I used to get letters from Gary because I never met him personally, but I'm, like you said, the case itself has so much similarity to mine. I mean, it's almost perfected to the T of the same way they wrongfully convicted me. And I had such a connection with him that I... I wrote him and I sent him things or I, you know, I tried to talk with him. But in receiving the letters back, it put me in such a place that it absolutely broke my heart. And I looked around, there was nothing I could really do. There was nothing I could really sense this. And it kept taking me to bad places. It kept the nightmares started coming back. And it was just really, really hurtful thing. And I think about him all the time. And Centurion Ministries launches a Hail Mary on Gary's behalf. That could be his final shot at freedom. It's one that includes some radical thinking. 
you know, I mean, it was a difficult case given the prosecutor now was a judge in the court. Um, I think we even made a motion to exclude everybody, and then they said that, you know, all the, all the judges in that circuit. That's all for now. Be sure to click subscribe in the iTunes or Google Play Store, or follow in the Stitcher Radio app so that you never miss an episode. I'm news columnist John A. Torres. You can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on the case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Thanks again for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Murder on the Space Coast is written and reported by John A. Torres. The editor is Mara Bellaby. The producer is Rob Landers.